Okay, so we're going to continue in Psalms today. We're going to look at Psalm 19. Uh, As you go to Psalm 19, I'll start this way. Uh, Many of us have a deep affection and uh, love for God's beauty and creation. I know I do. I can still remember the first time it kind of struck me or my first awareness of how beautiful this world was that we lived in. And it was my grandparents' 40th wedding anniversary uh, that was kind of a, it was a family reunion where we celebrated in Frisco, Colorado. And if you know anything about the Frisco area or Breckenridge or anywhere around there, it is gorgeous. There's these gorgeous pines. The sun is close and clear. Uh, the lakes are pristine. And I remember as a, I think, 11 or 12-year-old, can't really remember, I just remember these funny little creatures called chipmunks everywhere, uh, just dashing back and forth across the dirt paths. And there was something so satisfying about their little jerky movements and how they kind of teased and played with the squirrels. But anyway, um, I, I love, love God's creation. Uh, when we were in Wheaton, Illinois, which is west of Chicago, my wife and I were there for about a dozen years. I remember going to the Morton Arboretum pretty much weekly. It's this 1,700-acre haven of river streams and, you know, this beautiful idyllic Lake Marmo, uh, daffodil glades in the spring. It was just extraordinary. It was a sanctuary uh, with God. And many of us have this appreciation. You can think of own times in your life where you stand amazed at God's creation. And it moves us, doesn't it? There's something effectual that happens to us. It stirs our emotions, and that's because it was meant to. It was meant to. God created the heavens and the earth to move us somewhere, to transform us. God's general revelation, the way he speaks to us throughout all the earth, is meant to move us. And of course, like many of you, I also have a deep appreciation for God's special revelation, God's word. I can still remember the first time it came alive to me, age 15. Um, preacher preached in a relatable and passionate way, and I was like, wow, that's amazing. And I did what any 15-year-old would do. I read the first 20 chapters of Genesis, uh, because of course, that's where you would start. Um, And then I stopped, and I started in the New Testament, which is a very good place to start. And so I just remember uh, month after month, year after year, the, the Word of God leaping off the page, grabbing my heart, giving me a love for God and a love for His glory. And of course, many of us here have experienced that as well. And so whether it's God's general revelation in creation or his special revelation in his word, what we're going to see in Psalm 19 today is there's a purpose. There's a purpose for God revealing himself to us in creation and through his word. And that purpose is to lead us to humble repentance and faith. And so as you've been with me here the last two weeks and now here the third week, you know I am note taker friendly in my preaching. So here's the big idea. What's the big idea of Psalm 19? It's this. It's because God has provided both a glorious creation and a gracious word, we must respond in humble repentance and faith. He's provided a glorious creation, a gracious word. We respond rightly when we respond in humble repentance and faith. And so uh, conveniently for a preacher like me, there's three nice sections. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6, which is all about God's glorious creation, verses 7 through 11, which is about his gracious word, and then we're going to look at David's humble repentance and faith in verses 12 through 14. So I'm going to read this now in the CSB. I'm going to pray. We'll get into it. Here it is, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. And night after night, they communicate knowledge. There is no speech 
There are no words. Their voice is not heard, yet their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming from his home. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. It rises from one end of the heavens and circles to their other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey, dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them there is an abundant reward. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer, is that the words of our mouth, the meditations of our heart would be pleasing to you. You are our Lord. You are our rock and our redeemer. God, I pray that you would use your word to move and transform us, to instruct us, to warn us, to give us new life today as your people gather together to hear you and what you will say. Pray in Christ's name. They all said, amen. Okay, so we're going to start in the first section, verses one through six. And here is the main point of this section. It's going to be quite clear. The heavens proclaim God's glory. It's pretty obvious. The heavens proclaim God's glory. Now, it would be just as biblical to say all creation, all creation proclaims God's glory. Indeed, that's the testimony of Scripture. It's not just that the heavens declare the glory of God, but all parts of the created order. And why did I say God instead of perhaps Lord or Yahweh, the proper Old Testament name of God in the Scripture? Well, as we're going to see in a bit, David's very particular about why he says God here as opposed to Yahweh and why he's talking about the heavens as opposed to all creation. David will use God's proper name, Yahweh, in connection with the word of Yahweh in verses uh, 7 through 11 and then in verses 12 through 14. But here David chooses the word ale. That's E-L, but it sounds like something, yes, you would put in a pint. Ale, because he wants God, thank you for the laugh, wife, uh, because he wants God um, to be connected to his identity as creator. Okay, we know God has many identities throughout the Old Testament, but the first identity we see is in Genesis 1-1, where he is connected to his creative power as he speaks, and there was light, and he speaks, and there was creation. El created the heavens and the earth. And so verses 1 and 2 read like this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. And so in verses 1 and 2, we see four verbs used to describe the communication of God's glory. Declare, proclaims, pour out, and communicate. But what is the glory of God? What is it talking about? So if the heavens proclaim the glory of God, that begs the question, what is the glory of God? Well, in a poetic way that we often see, the first half of the verse states something. The second half of the verse 
tells us what he's talking about. So look at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse proclaims what? The work of his hands. The work of his hands. So the glory of God is connected here to the work of his hands. Well, what does that mean? At minimum, it means two things. One, God is powerful. If God can create the heavens, he must be powerful. And second, God must be beautiful. If God can create heavens that we see every morning, every evening, every night, he must be beautiful. And so there's this knowledge that's being poured out, verse 2, or verse two says, of his glory. That as one ex- gazes upon the expanse of the sky, God is communicating. He is filling a heart and a mind with his knowledge of his glory. So like a river in a rainforest, this happens not just once a day, not just twice a day, not just when it's a beautiful sunrise or a beautiful sunset. What does it say? It pours out day after day, night after night. It's like a river in the Amazon where it just keeps pouring. It doesn't matter where you are across the globe. God's glory is being proclaimed by the expanse, okay? And it carries this knowledge. It carries this message. Here's the message. We just talked about it. There is a creator. He is gloriously powerful enough to make the heavens. He is gloriously beautiful enough to make them spectacular to our eyes. Now, some of you are familiar with the Bible. You should be connecting this already with something Paul, the apostle, says in Romans, right? Romans chapter 1. Here's what Paul says about God's glory and creation and what that means, what it's speaking. Verse 20 of chapter 1 in Romans says this, For his, God's, invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. So Paul's essentially agreeing with Psalm 19. There's certain core truths about God's power and his divine nature that are being communicated day and night via the heavens indeed through all creation. In the context of Paul's letter to Rome, what does this make us? What is this communication of God's knowledge day after day, night after night? What does that condemn us as? Without excuse. Without excuse. In other words, nobody is going to be able to say to God on the day of judgment, you know what, God? There just wasn't enough evidence. How am I supposed to know that you existed, that you were powerful and beautiful and worthy to be praised? Because that idea is out there in our culture, is it not? You've probably heard friends or family members or colleagues say, you know, if God was real, he'd be pretty clear. You know what the Bible says? He is really clear. He's so clear that you don't have to understand English. You don't have to understand Mandarin. You don't have to understand any language. You look and the glory of God is communicating. That is the testimony of Psalm 19. So doesn't matter if you grew up in the remote villages of India, the urban center of Toronto, the African bush, or the beautiful rose city of Tyler, Texas. We are without excuse. We live under the continually poured out knowledge of God's glory day after day, night after night, month after month, year after year. Now, of course, there's, again, there's nothing in the sky that's written in English that says, hey, you see this? This is God's glory. He's beautiful. He's creator. It doesn't say that, does it? It's his nonverbal communication. It's his inaudible message. Verse 3 tells us that when it says there's no words, his voice is not heard, and yet it has gone out to the entirety 
of the world. And as I've dwelt on this, I realized, you know, there's two American proverbs that you've probably heard that speak about the value of nonverbal communication. Here they are. First is, your actions speak so loudly, I cannot hear what you are saying. I cannot hear what you are saying. And the more commonly heard second saying is this, actions speak louder than words. And of course, that is spouses and parents and voters everywhere. Can I get an amen? Amen. The point of both of these Proverbs is that sometimes it is action, not verbal language, that communicates most clearly. Not always, but sometimes. And it is the case with God in creation. God, instead of utilizing only verbal communication, decides in his infinite wisdom, power, beauty, and joy that he would create a world in which eyes could behold his glory in creation and receive the message that God is glorious in power and divine in nature. Indeed, indeed, the greatest nonverbal language he, he has given us is in giving us the person of Christ. Did he not? Is that not the pinnacle of God's creation? And we'll return to him in a moment. But as we move on to finish this section, in verses, uh, the last part of verse 4 and then through verse 5, we see a pair of similes. Remember, this is poetry. And this is David using a poetic tool to highlight something about the sun and the heavens. God is said to have created a tent or a home in which the sun can lay down at night. You see the sun during the day? He goes to bed at night. Okay, that's the idea. Only to reemerge in the morning like a bridegroom from his house and an athlete running its, his course. So the first simile, it's likely highlighting the vitalizing nature of the sun. And the second simile highlights the strength and the relentlessness of it. Verse 6 finishes the section by reminding us that nothing is hidden from the life-giving power of the sun's heat. Now, you scientists out there know this. It's the combination of the sun's what? Gravity, light, and heat that make life on earth possible. Indeed, there would be no life here without the sun. Now, did David realize that when he's communicating this? Probably not in the same way that we would understand it post-scientific revolution, right? But certainly, the ancients were not stupid. (laughs) Certainly, they knew that the light and the heat of the sun brought forth new life. Indeed, this is why so many ancients worshipped a sun god. But unlike most ancient people, David knew the true creator of the heavens and the earth, and he's not giving ultimate praise to the sun for the heat and the life it brings. Rather, he's giving it to his God, the creator of the sun and the heavens. And so in verses 1 through 6, we see the glory of God's general revelation in creation. We see the truth. Here it is. The heavens proclaim God's glory. Now, church, if that was all God had given us, if he had just given us the heavens, if he had just given us creation, that would be enough. We're without excuse to not know something about the goodness and the glory of God. That would be enough. Just think of the beautiful people in your life. Just think of the things that you have seen and heard and touched and felt. That would be enough. But in his infinite grace, compassion, patience, covenantal love, he gives us a greater testimony of himself. The one true God whose proper Old Testament name is Yahweh gives us his word. And so as we look at verses 7 through 11, we see this. The word proclaims Yahweh's grace. The word proclaims Yahweh's grace. And so you should see 
a flip here. The heavens are proclaiming God's glory, and his word is proclaiming Yahweh's grace. There's a shift taking place. We're still talking about the same three-in-one trinity. We're still talking about the same God, but we're using a different identifying name to highlight a different aspect of who he is. And so we begin this section, 7 through 11, by looking at the first three verses of it. And I want to read this to you because it's not often that you can kind of hear a little bit of the poetic meter that's intended in the Hebrew. But you can kind of hear it. The, the translators here did a good job of kind of bringing it out. So I just kind of want you to feel the poetry here. Verse 7 says this, The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to, we're going to walk through these different aspects of God's Word. It's a little technical, but it's important to see kind of the multifaceted nature of God's Word that is highlighted here. So the first aspect of God's Word translated here in verse 7 as instruction is probably the most broad. It's kind of how he opens up the section. The underlying Hebrew here is the word Torah or Torah, which many of us are familiar with. Now, that word, it can be translated simply as the Pentateuch, first five books of the Old Testament, or it can be translated with a capital L law. But here, it's more broad than that. Think of it as lowercase l or lowercase instruction. It's broadly speaking of all of God's revealed word in Scripture. And this Torah of the Lord is perfect. What does that mean? Complete, unified, without blemish. Complete, unified, without blemish. And the result of this word, what does it say? It says it is life renewal. Life renewal. And here's another idea we see renewed in the New Testament, don't we? Jesus is described as the Word, the complete, unified, and blameless Word of God. It is He who is the way, the truth, and the church, life. A principle to be seen here is this, even in the Old Testament, that it is the perfect Word of God that brings about new life. The Word of God renews our life. When the Word of God is proclaimed, new life begins. And so it would stand to reason, would it not, church, that when we need renewal— when we need new life, when something is dead in our lives, the first place, not the last place we should be looking, is the Word of God. How many times might I, have we, experienced, instead of experiencing regret, experienced renewal if we just went to God's Word? And it sounds simple, but it's not, it's not easy. How many times would we have renewal in our lives? Think about the place. I'm saying... Where do we need renewal? You're probably, there's something in your life that probably needs renewal. Where is it? What does the word of God say about it? And as we seek God through his word, we let it lead us to Jesus. So the word of God brings life renewal. Part two of verse seven, the next aspect of God's word is his testimony. And this is God's own witness about himself. This is God in the courtroom of heaven saying, I have complete and faithful reliable, trustworthy testimony. And when we meditate on it, there's another benefit. What does it say? It makes the inexperienced wise. You don't have to be old to be wise. 
You don't have to be foolish if you're young. You meditate on God's testimony, it makes the inexperienced wise. Do you want wisdom? The Bible says we should. In Proverbs 8:11, it says this, for wisdom is better than jewels and nothing, nothing desirable can equal it. For wisdom is better than jewels and nothing desirable can equal it. Do you want wisdom? You should. You should want it more than your next paycheck. You should want it more than you want anything. You should want the wisdom of God in your life. It makes the inexperienced wise. So his instruction gives life, his testimony gives wisdom. Next, we note the precepts of the Lord. Verse 8. What are those? Those are commandments. Those are commandments. Precepts are authoritative rules for living. And, it, and the result here, it says, is a sad face. Because they are no fun. Is that up there? Did we get that? Good. No, it doesn't say that at all, does it? It doesn't say that at all. Precepts, when we follow them, make the heart glad. Precepts equal happy face. But it doesn't seem like that sometimes, does it? I mean, Beyonce, she seems to be living her best life right now. The Rock is crushing it on social media. You can tell what my mind is in. And Conor McGregor seems pretty happy with his millions of dollars. I mean, we see that all the time, don't we? Turn on the television. Listen to the news. On the flip side, I've known some pretty unhappy people who call themselves Christians. Sometimes I wake up and I see him in the mirror. But for those of you who are wiser, more experienced among us, you know this verse to be true, don't you? Over the long haul, you've seen dozens of friends, colleagues, and neighbors experience grief for not obeying the precepts of the Lord. And on the flip side, you have experienced over and over again the joy of a clean conscience before the Lord and before others. Obeying the precepts of Yahweh brings joy. Do you want joy? Do you need joy? Life is hard. You can't do it without joy. You need joy? Well, one of the first places you can start is with this question. Are you disobeying any of the precepts of the Lord? Because here's the truth. Disobeying precepts equals sad face. You know, it's a little comical and simple, but it's true, is it not? Sometimes it really is that simple. What do you do if you know you're disobeying the Lord? We'll see what David does in a moment. So Yahweh's instruction gives life. His testimony gives wisdom. His precepts give joy. That's a pretty good start. But wait, there's more. Moving on, the command of the Lord, the command of the Lord here, um, it, basically a synonym to precepts, but it's described here with the adjective of radiant. So the idea here is a little bit different. The idea here is of a pure morning sunlight breaking across the horizon and, quote, making the eyes light up. In other words, the word of God is the bright sunshine that clears our view of the path ahead. The word of God reveals what the darkness conceals. And we can add that to the list. The word of God gives direction. And then in verse 9, David throws us a bit of a poetic change-up, so to speak. So instead of using another noun to describe the word of the Lord— he, like he does with instruction, testimony, precepts, and command, he uses the word fear as a catch this, metonymy. Word of the day for all you literary geeks out there, 
Metonymy. What is that? It's a literary device used to replace an idea with a word that is closely associated with the idea. I'm just highlighting again, this is poetic language. Here are a couple of examples that we see used today. The pen is mightier than the sword. Pen equals writing, sword equals military power. Pen is a metonymy for writing. Sword is a metonymy for military power. Another one, the White House is concerned about terrorism. White House equals the president, the cabinet, and others who work there. In this case, David is using fear of the Lord as a what? Metonymy uh, for the word of the Lord. In other words, he's using the intended effect of the word. What is the intended effect of the word? The fear of the Lord. That is reverential awe that takes seriously God's sovereign power and authority. If you don't, at least every now and again, tremble before a holy God, then the word of God isn't having its intended effect. The fear of the Lord takes seriously his sovereign power and authority. And this fear of the Lord, that its intended effect, it says it's pure. It's pure. The fear of the Lord is pure. And here it's not like a pure morning sunlight. It's like, it's like a pure uh, morality. It's, it's morally spotless. It's bleached white moral purity or cleanliness. And it endures forever. It endures forever. I think it's important to highlight here Jesus again. Jesus in Matthew 24, 35, he uses this idea of Yahweh's eternal words to apply to his own speech when he declares this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. In other words, my word too is enduring forever. It's one of many witnesses across the New Testament that Jesus is equal to Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. And so finally we come to the last part of this mini section, we see the last word used to describe the word of the Lord, and that's ordinances. That's his just judgments. That means that everything, so not only is his testimony in the court of heaven true, that means every judgment he makes is true because it's coming from the standard of justice himself, the Lord who is our judge. And so we have instruction money. In, in, instruction money. We do have instruction money. Instruction, testimony, precepts, command, fear, ordinances. This is the precious, multifaceted word of God. It's the special revelation that is for God's people. And it makes you want to ask the question as you read that, are you in awe of this? Or is it just a technical, intellectual understanding? Yeah, yeah, I agree. All those things are true. Or does it elicit love? I love God's word. How kind of God to not leave us wondering. You see, in verse 10, our next verse, it almost implicitly challenges what can sometimes be our all too often apathy or indifference to God's word. Verse 10 says this, they are more desirable than gold. Do you see it? It's brighter than gold. It's more valuable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold. And sweeter than honey, dripping from a honeycomb. When was the last time you were around somebody who just had a love for, a wonder of God's instruction? When was the last time you heard somebody talking and they were just savoring God's word? It was delightful to them. They were rejoicing in God's revelation to his people. You know what it felt like to be around that person? Do you remember what it felt like when you were, you were almost, you were affronted with that joy of God's word? See, whenever that happens to me, I think kind of three emotions pop up. One is, hey, I want that too. Where'd you get that? 
that's pretty good. Give me some of that. The second is maybe a tinge of guilt. Maybe some of us here are hearing this and are like, yeah, I don't really love God's word like that. And the third, third emotion sometimes is just unsettledness. Man, that dude's pretty radical. I don't know what to do with that. How do I respond to that sort of fervency? Well, I want to say the, for that first emotion, this desire to experience what they're experiencing, that's what verse 10 is trying to do to us. It's trying to say, hey, the best food, the sweetest food you've ever tasted, better. Hey, your fattest paycheck, this is better. What are you looking for? This is the greater treasure. It's meant to draw us into a renewed awakening of the goodness of God's word. If you don't know God's word, if it has never left off the page, if the Holy Spirit has not illuminated the grace of God to you, it's meant to bring you into repentance to say, I want that. I want to know there's a God. I want to know he speaks. And if this has jumped off the page to you before, it's meant to elicit another response. God, give me in your word, renew my life. Do it again, Lord. What you've done in the former days, do it again. Renew my heart. Let your word come alive and give me the life I need. It is more desirable than abundant wealth. It is sweeter than the sweetest taste of honey. Put in there whatever your desire is. It's better. God speaking to his people is good. Then lastly, in verse 11, quickly, we are warned by them. There's another benefit. We are warned by the precepts and the instruction of the Lord. In other words, this is how I would phrase it, obeying God's word keeps us from paying life's stupid taxes. <laughs> you know what a stupid tax is, don't you? Sure you do. A stupid tax is when we do something we didn't have to do that was stupid, and we paid the cost for it. Last week, I was paying a stupid tax, was I not? I was sitting in a chair preaching because playing tennis, I hurt my back, and instead of stopping, I played for another hour. That's a stupid tax. Earlier this year, I was out mowing the lawn without sunscreen on. I paid the stupid tax that night and the next day. Keeping God's word is a little bit like living stupid tax free. <laughs> but catch this. There's also great reward. It's even better. It's like getting a stupid tax credit. I had to laugh. I had to laugh at that one. This is a blanket statement. It's not meant to refer to any one reward of an obedient follower of the word, but of the general blessings that God pours out upon those who abide in him by obeying his word. It's the fruit of joy when facing a trial. It's the joy of knowing, hey, this is hard, but I'm obeying God's word. And he's faithful and he's going to come through. It's the fruit of a godly friendship when it's a tough season. It's the fruit of knowing, you know what? I've loved people well. I have friends in my life. Therefore, I'm going to make it. It's the overflow of God's presence in your life as you pray regularly, seeking him in the morning. In addition to all the greatness of God's word that we have seen in verses 7 through 10, we're also warned, watch out. That path that you're on, path of destruction. It's wide. Many people are flooding to it. Don't go there. Go to the path of life. The word leads us to the narrow path of life. And so how would I sum up all these attributes of God's word? Grace. Just grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. And it's covenantal grace. It's covenantal grace. What do I mean by that? 
His word binds us to himself in covenant in the person of Jesus. Does it not? Can I get an amen? His word, when it leads us to the Lord, it binds us to himself. The Lord of life himself. There is a way to read God's word that leads to death. The Pharisees found it. Jesus rebukes them. He says, you think you're going to find life in the word? And yet the word talks about me. If it's just knowledge, if it's just an understanding of a distant God, but it doesn't lead you to Jesus, then you haven't found its ultimate end. You haven't experienced that covenanting grace. God's word declares Yahweh's grace. So part one, the heavens declare God's glory. Part two, the word declares Yahweh's grace. And now part three, verses 12 through 14. God's glorious creation that we looked at and his gracious word that we looked at, they lead us to humble repentance and faith. They lead us somewhere. They lead us somewhere. If we experience God's creation and we read his word and we don't respond this way, we stand condemned as those who are not responding rightly to God's word. It has to move us. It has to lead us somewhere. Where does it lead us? Humble repentance and faith. Let's read verses 12 through 14 again. Feel David's repentance. Feel David's faith in all of the expanse of the heavens and the sun going back and forth like a bridegroom, goes back and forth like an athlete running its course. It's pouring out to him day by day. He's feeling the overwhelm. Then he thinks about God's word. Wow. You know, as king of Israel, he had the copy of the law. He had the instruction. He had the precepts. He had Samuel's word. What happens? Repentance. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. He's just, he's just overwhelmed by his sinfulness. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Not just the ones I don't know about, but the ones I'm actually thinking I might do. David knew a thing or two about willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. And here's Here's the, here's the finale, right? This is, this is what you could just open up Psalm 19, look at verse 14. You could just spend all day at Psalm 19, 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, that is Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. So what are these unintentional sins that he's talking about? You see, the law and the Levitical system actually made atonement available for unintentional sins. You can read about it if you want to in Leviticus 4. If a community leader sins, here's the sacrifice. If a commoner sins, here's the sacrifice. If the community as a whole sins, here's the sacrifice. Here's what Old Testament scholar Alan P. Ross writes in his commentary about this. He says, quote, the types of sins he's talking about here are sins of ignorance. The term can describe waywardness in general, but in the cultic laws, it describes sins that were unintentional, hidden, or inadvertent. That they were sins of ignorance is evidenced by the fact that Leviticus prescribed the sin offering for these sins when the guilty found out about them or was made aware of them. That's Leviticus 4, 28 right there. The word could refer to any sin that was committed out of ignorance of the law or any sin that was committed inadvertently or any sin that was rationalized. These are clearly not the premeditated violations of the law, but even though they may have been committed unwittingly, they were nevertheless sins. And I will add, against a holy God. So have you ever done something to hurt someone you didn't realize until afterwards? They come to you and say, hey, that really hurt. Man, wish I hadn't done that. 
You know, some of our first response to that is what? Hey, hey, totally didn't mean to. I, I did not mean to. But the wiser ones among us don't quite respond like that, right? Because <laughs> that's not what they want to hear. The wiser spouse, the wiser parent, the wiser friend, the wiser colleague responds something like this. I am so sorry I hurt you. I had no idea. Obviously, I have wounded you. I am so sorry. Here, David responds wisely. He responds humbly. He responds with the confession that his fallen humanity means there's certainly sin in his life that is offending, wounding, hurting God in a sense. And he confesses, he confesses this sin to God, even though he doesn't perceive it. Indeed, who can? And here, I want to say two things. Who can perceive it? Obviously, no, he's saying no one can perceive it. But I think the New Testament also kind of says community can. And if we lived in community close enough or we asked people, they would tell us. <laughs> ask your spouse. Ask your friends. Ask your life group. Ask trusted advisors. They can perceive it. When is the last time you asked God to forgive you of your hidden heart sins? You can do it today. It's not something we have to dwell on all the time. It's not something that, we sh that should drive us to feeling condemned. But it's good on the regular to confess unintentional sins to God. Think about the things that you know are sin today that you didn't know were sin five years ago. Five years from now, you'll think about more. Pray that the Lord would cleanse you for those. Thir verse 13, David is asking God for strength, obviously, to be kept away from willful sins. This is, I know what to do, and I don't do it. So God, help me, keep me from being, what does it say, ruled by sin, ruled by sin. And I'm not going to go there to Romans. We're not going to put that up. Um, but here's the idea of Romans 6. We're dead to sin. We're alive to God in Christ Jesus. We've died to sin, therefore live in it no longer. But it also says, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. So there's a choice. We're dead to sin, alive to God, and yet there's a choice. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Why is that? Because whoever we obey, whether it's God leading to righteousness and life, or whether it's sin leading to unrighteousness and death, we are slaves to that which we obey. When the sinful impulse comes to lash out, when the sinful impulse comes to gossip, when the sinful impulse comes to be a glutton in front of wonderful food, whatever that is, we have the power as believers in Christ via the Holy Spirit to say no, to not let that. And that's what David's prayer is. David's prayer is, God, empower me. Keep me from intentional sins. And then, of course, moving on now towards the end here. Verse 14, the finale. The finale is humble repentance and faith. Verse 12 and 13 show us repentance, do they not? God, cleanse me from any sin I don't know of, and then God, keep me from the intentional ones too. That is repentance. Any part of my life that is offensive to you, let it be done away with. Keep me from it. And then in verse 14, we see faith. We see faith. Who's this faith then? Last line of the whole text says this. Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. David knows God. He knows Yahweh. He knows he is his rock. He knows he is his redeemer. So the question for all of us today is, do you know Yahweh, your rock and your redeemer? 
Have you repented and believed? Have you responded rightly to God's general revelation and God's special revelation? Have you repented of your sins? Because here's the good news of the gospel. The word made flesh came and lived among us. He dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son of God. And it's responding rightly to Jesus that leads us either to condemnation or eternal life. We're either outwardly and inwardly wasting away or we're outwardly wasting away, but inwardly being renewed day by day by the power of the Holy Spirit. Have you repented and believed in Jesus? If you're here today and you have not done this, you have not experienced the word of God leaping off the page, binding you to himself in covenantal grace for eternity. If you have not experienced that today, that is the call of repentance for you today. There is no other call until you respond to that call. And the people here who have experienced that would tell you that. Amen, church? There is one God. There is one Lord. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the Word made flesh. He is Yahweh made flesh. He lived among us so we would see his glory, repent and believe and experience eternal life. Hallelujah. But for those who respond wrongly, you see, the gospel is not just I'm sharing with you about how God's been good to me. It is calling you to repent and believe because you stand in offense to a holy God. It's both. It's not either or. It's the good news and the bad news. Have you repented and believed? Do you want to know what that's about? Do it today. Talk to somebody here. There's a reason you're here. There's a reason you're listening online. And for those of us who have experienced that, where do you need to ask for forgiveness? Where do you need to rightly respond? Is there a willful sin you need to be kept of? Or you can't think of a willful sin I'm telling you, there's an unintentional one in there. <laughs> Repent today. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this opportunity we've had to hear your word proclaimed. Thank you so much that um, you have given us your glorious general revelation. Every day we look up to the bright sky or the dark sky, it doesn't matter. We look up and we see.